Hello, and welcome to episode four of Like Riding a Bike. That's riding with a W. As always, I'm your host, Alex Gast, and I'm here today with a very exciting guest who by all means is way too famous and busy to be on my podcast today, but she's here nonetheless. She's a distinguished professor of creative writing at the University of California, Riverside. She's the author or editor of 18 books, including her most recent publication, Look at This Blue, which was a finalist for the 2022 National Book Award in Poetry. She's a Fulbright Scholar, a recipient of the Emory Elliott Book Award, a Library of Congress Witter Benner Fellow, a First Jade Nurtured Seaway Female International Poet, a George Garrett Awardee, and much more. And often when people say much more, they're implying that they've cut like three things off the list. And I really mean it in like the vastest sense of the words. If I listed her accolades, we would be here really all day. And I know y'all don't want to hear me talk that much. You want to hear her. So without further ado, here's Allison Adele Hedgecoke. Thank you for being here with us today. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm really good. I'm I'm really just stoked to be talking with you. I appreciate you sharing your time with us so much. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for asking me. Let's jump right into things. And and I see no problem with starting at your start because chronology is important. So you actually got your start as a worker, which is a really broad term. But in your case, I think it's like one of the more acceptable terms because just the scope and range of things that you've done um, is it's broad. So I was wondering, like, before you got into academia, what your life sort of looked like, and then how that transition was made? Yeah, so these are great questions for me. Uh, Depending on the season, and placement uh, within the season, and what opportunities there were, um, what my life looked like could be uh, affected by season because I was a farm laborer. And at one point in time, uh, when I was old enough, I became a tobacco and sweet potato sharecropper. This lasted well into adulthood. Uh, But off season, I was doing other things. It could be commercial fishing, uh, training horses or dogs, uh, as we'd say, breaking horses or wrangling for somebody. I did construction. I worked in service uh, as far as waiting tables, cleaning houses. So depending on what job was available, what time of year it was, I could be involved in many various labors, each of which has its own lifestyle, so to speak. Uh, So the life changes when you enter that particular position. Um, So while I was doing heavy equipment, I was a heavy equipment operator. That's the life I was living when I was working in carpentry. I was a carpenter. When I was tobacco sharecropper, I was sharecropper all the way. Um, So each of those lifestyles carries with it certain qualities that characteristically a person moves into or comes from. And in my case, it was a bit of both. Uh, So uh, I moved into academia very slow progression from left field, as they say. Um, I had left North Carolina a couple of times in a real... Uh, tenuous situation each time 
both involved um, dangerous matters. And so each time was a bit of an escape. And the first time mm. that I, I left intentionally to change life, I ended up uh, going to the Bay Area in San Francisco. And my sister had moved there and it was going to be a fresh start. Well, I left with basically what I had on and a couple of items and an infant. And I got there and they had a lot of barriers for people that they termed indigent, which they termed me. So they wouldn't offer me any real help with social services and such or a way that I could have childcare so I could look for a job or anything like that. They did offer my sister rent for housing me um, for the room that I got from her, but they didn't help me a lot. And I ended up coming back and being involved in work, labor, and life that I was in at the time. And the second opportunity uh, came up uh, to go to another state, and I crossed over the ridge into Tennessee and got a divorce. And then I luckily went back to California because they had something that was called former field worker retraining. My sister had located it. And we thought because I was a field worker, this would be a way to start over and put me in other kinds of work and find out what was possible for me. Um, I had a lot of uh, issues with disability and the labor had worn me out completely. So I did former field worker retraining in Santa Paula and Ventura, California and was hired to work by the city of San Buenaventura in various capacities, including working with second chance high school kids. And I had a GED, they would go to high school and work with these second chance high school kids and get them up to par in their grade. And then they created a job for me in collections management. And I began curating uh, for the city of San Buenaventura and three historic places that they had set up that were public facing. And I went from there into lobbying for people in performance roles. All the while I was playing music. I had come from music and played music all my life and uh, started studying a bit of um, script. I was interested in writing for performance as well as uh, writing lyrics to song. And that led me to entering into a program and studying creative writing. And uh, once I realized poetry was not something that you had to hide from people, that you could just go ahead and live in the poet head and <laughs> the world would still revolve, uh, I was hooked and uh, kept studying more and more. went to grad school, skipped my bachelor's, went to grad school, finished and started teaching immediately. That's such a journey to get there. Um... But it, it sounds like the whole time you were you were really giving back to communities um, and and just working extremely hard. So that's that's an amazing yeah. It's an amazing life story. And I remember um, when I got a chance to speak with you um, a couple months ago when you visited the University of North Carolina. Just you telling all these amazing stories. There was one about a dynamite truck and and just it, I get the sense from you that you've just lived like so many lives um, prior to even entering poetry and then since then so many more um, and what a gift that is and how it's influenced your work I think I think that's wonderful yeah well said I agree wholeheartedly <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah we talk a lot in in my classes about um, how academia is like such a 
valuable space to be in as poets and stuff, but also the value of like taking time pre-academia to live your life and, and get experiences um, and how that's experience, experiential learning is, is more valuable or similarly valuable. Um, so I think you've had a lot of experiences. When I was in grad school, there was a lot of students who had not had uh, a very varied life or one that had um, engagements in, in uh, different styles of living simultaneously and or had just had uh, a very stable, very centered experience in life in one place and time. And uh, they were always encouraged by our professors to get a job, to go find out what things were, to go and live life. And and I came in, <laughs> I came in already disabled from work. <laughs> so it was a whole different thing for me. But I I believe that even on the professorial side, when I my favorite place to grade, my favorite place to do critical aspects of looking at or experiencing student work favorite place in the world is flat on the bottom of a canoe or other vessel in a river going downstream and focused on a student writing and just lying there with the water rocking me paying attention to the work (laughs) you know it's my favorite place (laughs) that is like the most peaceful and poetic image i can imagine like like if i'm if I'm sending off a paper or a poem for submission and I'm like, how can this be graded? That's that's my dream scenario. That's what I'm imagining a, every professor does in a perfect world. But that sounds so in peaceful. Wouldn't that be great if we could all do that all day while we're engaging with student work? Because the students get so much more from me at that time. Everything else in the world is good. I'm just floating along and here's the work in front of me. So things open up in a way. Yeah. That's the dream. Yeah, yeah the life. Yeah, um, invoking nature kind of ties into what I, what I wanted to talk about next, which is look at this blue, which of course is, is so nature-centric um, and, and California-centric as well. But um, it's a book of poetry for those who haven't read it um, that reaches about 120 pages which is not an absurd or atypical amount, but the twist is that it's all one poem, which is so fascinating to me. So I was wondering what your process looked like with such a like massive undertaking of a poem kind of versus what it's like to write a collection. Because obviously when you're writing a collection, it's, it's cohesive to an extent, but it's not 120 pages of one poem. So, so I was wondering if you could speak on that. Yeah, um, so each book that I've authored has had very different circumstance as far as entering into the poem or poems, depending on project. Um, I'm not sure if I spoke about this before, but I, I do have temporal lobe epilepsy, and with that I have something that's called hypographia. And I move into very compelled states of writing. Uh, which generally are driven by a certain need to convey and me unfolding every bit of knowledge I have into something that um, comes out of me as poetry. 
and uh, very musically based. It's very driven by music that I'm experiencing as well in an intellectual capacity. And uh, look at this blue, uh, the entire poem, the entire piece happened over a weekend. Uh, so from onset- You're kidding. You know, from onset of first touch on the keyboard until completion was a weekend. Um, so wow. fully engaged, full throttle, and uh, both fact-checking and researching at the same time I was writing. So three devices open, one I'm composing in, one I'm fact-checking myself, researching uh, newer uh, maybe ideas and or proofs that have happened since my core knowledge. And the third uh, departure, disassociation, distraction for the moments of procrastination that come up or just to uh, feel differently. I took four walks. I drank coffee. I have water. I didn't eat a lot. Uh, I don't even remember food very much during the weekend. I took the four walks because I needed more inspiration and walking, moving through space does that for me. Uh, also to get out of my head for a minute. Uh, so, uh, so it happened in a weekend and I had a book deadline. I had written a manuscript for, I wasn't feeling it was the time and place for that manuscript. And I felt like there was more that I had to give that I wanted to offer in this date and time, like this moment while I was writing that dealt with the state I'm living in and, and working for because I'm at a public institution, University of California, Riverside. And uh, both to tribute the beautiful aspects of this state and uh, detail what is at stake in this state that's absolutely gorgeous and beautiful and to counter what has tangled, disrespected, um, malformed, or uh, exterminated uh, aspects of the state that should have been protected, preserved, and for everyone to enjoy, including many, many species of plants and animals and, and populations of humanity. And I felt an urge, it was very urgent to me. And so I, I unfolded for the weekend and created this book and sent it instead. Um, the music had been in there for a while. It just gave me the time and place to, to do it. So what was, the, what was the publisher response when they received this new poem instead of the manuscript you'd been working on? Well, my thought when I hit submit was, if one person on the other end who I know the reading flavor receives this, they're going to hate it immediately. It's nothing like they want. But if this other person sees it, I'll, I'll have a book deal. And I had, you know, I was already at deadline for what they expected. Right. And the first person that I thought about posted a note and said they just read the most insane thing they've ever read or something like that. And I thought, oh, no. Oh, no. And then the other person called me and said, I love this book. I love this book. Can I do it with you? And I said, yes. And it was an editor I hadn't worked with as an editor before, but she had traveled with me uh, when a former editor had passed and she filled in with another book I did with the same press 
I'm going on the road with me. And she was great to travel with. I said, yes, I'd love to do this with you. So it landed in the right hands for editing. And uh, I'm not sure how the original recipient felt other than their post. (laughs) (laughs) But I couldn't argue it because I'm the the form of it is entirely unique and uh, and it changes form throughout because for me it's a jazz orchestration, mm. very improvisational. But there's returns, there's a varying refrain, there's different movements, there's departures and solo, and uh, but there's unification in different points where there's this um, varying refrain that comes up, and uh, and so it's an orchestration of a poem in that sense, in that composition sense. Uh, so, it, so it might seem really crazy uh, to a, uh, a reader who has certain formulaic ideas that this is definitely going to break or challenge. Well, I would think an editor would, would come across insane things pretty often. So receiving the badge of most insane things she's ever read is, is kind of an honor. <laughs> I think that's good. <laughs> it's pretty funny. People, people talk all, I hear poets talk all the time about um, poetry as music and the connection between the two. And, and when you say it, it's, it's different. I get the sense that you are like really hearing poems as music in your head, like very often. Um, And that's really fat. Like, like seeing, seeing a book of poetry or a poem as, as a jazz orchestration is is remarkable. I wish my brain worked like that. <laughs> but every book is different. And for each book, it's been a different, uh, a different type of entry and a different composition and a different project. Uh, the, mm. the early books, um, a chat, the a chat book that preceded the others also happened like that. I had music in my head for about a year. And then I suddenly knew what the poem was. And I wrote it like in 40 minutes, the chat book, and it was done. Uh, and uh, in the first book, uh, Amir Barak had shown up at a student reading. He was very sweet to us, very kind to us, uh, helped us uh, get people to buy our student anthology. And he sent me postcards for eight months from different places he was traveling, introduced me to his wife, and kept asking me to put a book together. And so the first book came together because of him asking me to do this and staying with me via postcard long enough until I gathered the poems into what made sense for me as a manuscript. And I was finishing my two-year creative writing program, Associate of Arts, skipping bachelor's, going into grad school. And I finished it at the time I was uh, moving into grad school. So the first term... I worked with my mentor professor in grad school on the side loosely uh, as a second eye on the manuscript I was going to send in, who made some suggestions to me, most of which I think I incorporated. And then I sent it by Halloween that same term, and I had a retainer on it 16 weeks later, but it took years for a first book to come out back then. Uh, if it happened like that now, people would be so upset. <laughs> but it used to take like roughly three and a half to five years for a first book to come out back at that time. Wow. So I finished grad school before the book came out, uh, almost two years before the book came out. But I'd written it before I got there and in my undergrad. Wow. 
So what was what was waiting? What was the waiting process like? And people thought that you were not being truthful, that you didn't really have a contract. And and uh, it was there was a lot of curiosity. I would say, oh, I have a book coming out. Oh, yeah. So they were like, sure, you do. You said that like two years ago. <laughs> so it was kind of. Right. Was, yeah. OK. Yeah. So until it came out, it was like it wasn't real in essence, but it allowed me to get to other work. So interim while it was waiting to come out, I started working on other projects, which I also later published. Hmm. Yeah. But it was interesting. I think it'd be very different waiting that long today. Right. Yeah. Pe- people are more impatient now. I get the sense. So Yeah. Yeah. I think my, my, I have a theory that the one, two good things, I guess I should say, the two good things that have come from the COVID era, not COVID itself, but the COVID era. Right. I think that the younger kids are going to learn patience in a way that the older kids did not mm. because they couldn't do everything they wanted to do for a couple of years in primary learning years. Right. And so I think those kids may get some patience again, uh, like did exist at one time. And so that's my hope is that it might affect another generation with the level of patience really interesting we'll wait and see yeah well and especially we're in like the like technological age we're in is so like instant gratification um and like if you want something you can have it so instantly so then the the social shutting down of everything was yeah that that kind of works against the deconstruction of patients that's really interesting yeah i'm so fascinated like just talking to you is is fascinating. I, I really appreciate this. Oh, you're great. So I've mentioned already that I got to hear you do a reading about two months ago. Um, and we're talking a lot of in a lot of poetic communities I'm in about um, how to give an effective reading, like to sort of learn for ourselves for the future and to like be able to better articulate what we admire about readings we attend. Um and your reading in particular is one of the most poignant that I've attended. Um, you got up there and you said you said something along the lines of, I'm going to collect myself for a minute. And you were quiet for about 20 seconds. And then you launched into this flawless recitation of like a really long poem. And it was like I could hear the, the lyric behind it and how clearly you saw the poem in your head. So I was wondering um, what your what your process of preparing for a reading is um, and and what tips you have. Yeah, um, I actually teach performance of poetry and prose because I think it's so important for emerging writers uh, to get a grasp on what makes them perform well. Uh, and because you'll have to do it, you know, we're going to have to do these things. And uh, so I make time in our sessions to have a course dedicated to that. For me, it's a matter of uh, both accumulating what I have to give from at the moment and focusing on that, which could be any aspect of your character, emotions, uh, knowledge system. And when I feel like I have a handle of the strongest points of myself, I do a very brief, very, very, very short, almost self-hypnotic uh, meditation very simple, very quick, very brief, and just hold myself in that as though it's uh, something that has an energy of its own. And then I let it let it flourish. And 
think of each word as I say it. I think of the meaning of the word, which was said to me at one time when I was an emerging poet, um, I believe by Arthur Z, but I'm not positive, but I think it was Arthur, uh, who's a fantastic, phenomenal, brilliant poet. And I believe he said that to me at one time when I was first starting out reading in public and was terrified of the audience. And he said, focus on the words, what the meaning is. But to me, that translated to each word has such rich meaning <laughs> that you're going to honor the words as they're coming out of you using this energy that you've accumulated from yourself and deeper recesses of yourself and parts of yourself you normally don't let be vulnerable when you're in company of a large group of people. Uh, but it's something you can use because it opens you up. It's like that, um, you know, the singers who uh, cause you to feel um, uh, goosebumps or chicken skin on the back of your neck and give you ripples in your body when they hit certain notes, it's because they're using a full body voice. They're pulling up energy from the soles of their feet and below it all the way through their body and engaging every bit of themselves versus using a head voice or a belt voice. Uh, you know, uh, they're pulling all of themselves into it and you feel that it transfers. Uh, so it's for me, his articulation of every word has meaning, focus on the words, meaning not yourself. Don't focus on yourself, right? Focus on the words. And it created for me a field that I could use. And each one of those words, richness, then takes on its own energy as well. Uh, so thank you for the kind words about the reading. Uh, I just want everybody to be moved. And uh, so I, I think about what do I have to give? and try to allow that to be present for who is engaged in the room with me, like we're together on this ride. That was such a fantastic answer. And, and that's totally what we observed you do at the reading was really just channel the power of language into like every single word. Um, and I get the sense, like from hearing you talk about your craft process and your recitation process that you're um, really just allowing yourself when you're in these states of creation, um, just to like let the power of language and, and the world just like channel through you, which is really awesome. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. You're also doing a bit of the conducting, you know, you're also uh, figuring out which of the, for me, the instrument I'm following, and that takes on a character and becomes an embodiment that we might see return in the poem uh, or other features if it's a collection. Uh, so there's also that side of it as well. But, uh, I, you know, I'm really a service-oriented person, and I feel like poetry, every poem is a, an offering of sorts. Uh, it's a place where you can put something out into the world and see, um, you know, who who is affected by this. And maybe you're not there. You never meet the people who have read this, but someone somewhere needed that at the moment. Uh, so it feels like you're sort of trying to nourish the world in a way. And for someone who's given so much back to so many communities, um, seeing poetry as an act of service is, is so fitting and so powerful. Um, and, and somehow we are nearing 30 minutes already. And I, I want to I be respectful of your time. That went by so fast. You've been so generous with us already. But if you have any, any scraps of parting wisdom... Um, before we bring this episode to a close. Yeah, as far as uh, preparing yourself to do good work in the world, 
uh, creative work, especially, and also to allow yourself to be present with the work when we're talking about doing readings and or um, performances, this kind of feature. I think it's really important to also uh, maintain what, what your intentions are and to allow yourself to have agency and allow yourself uh, the anonymity when you need it so that you can be reclusive to get to the work that you really need to do. Uh, so that saying no is really important. <laughs> so remember, you have a right to say, no, I can't do this because I have to do this creative thing that's come up. Uh, because if we don't allow ourselves the time and space to create, none of the magic happens. Right. It just doesn't. Not for us, not for audience, not for anyone. So give yourself the privilege of writing. Right. And then you can share the privilege of the magic with everyone else. So yeah, Exactly. Amazing. Well, thank you so, so much. Um, I Reading all your accolades and everything, and, and before I met you at UNC, just reading about you, um, I was really intimidated. And, and it's just such a fun surprise that you're just a down-to-earth and wonderful-to-talk-to person. So oh, thank you for sharing your time with us today. Thank you, Alex. I really appreciate it. Thank you, and thank you, listeners. Cool. Take care. Yeah, well, that is going to bring this episode to a close. I'll see y'all next week. Have a lovely day.